You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Trading contentment or coveting for contentment. That's the, the idea this morning. And I want to start by giving you an illustration about somebody that many of you probably know about or have heard about. Um, if you follow professional sports at all, and I don't give a lot of sports analogies, but, but this morning I, I think it fits what I'm trying to get to. This, the, I want to give you um, just a little background of a, of a basketball player named Kevin Durant. How many of you have heard, have heard of Kevin Durant? Okay, all around the room. He's a professional NBA basketball player, and he grew up in the state of Maryland playing basketball, and, and as he grew and got better at basketball, he, he became one of the nation's high, most highly ranked high school recruits. He, played, uh, he, he committed to play at the University of Texas, and while he was there, had one of the best uh, freshman uh, seasons of all time in the NCAA uh, as a freshman in that one season what all, was all it needed or all he needed to become the second pick in the 2008 draft um, and uh, maybe the 2007 draft, actually. I know a lot about him basically because I'm bitter about Kevin. You'll find out here in a little bit. The second pick of the draft and he immediately showed himself to be one of the best offensive players in NBA history. He's almost unstoppable when it comes to scoring the basketball. And he became the face of the Oklahoma City Thunder franchise and one of the world's best players. And for those of you that know, I, I am from Oklahoma, at least spent the last 18 years or 20 years there uh, with college as well. And so I'm a Thunder fan. And so uh, you may, may think that I'm being biased about the things that I say about Kevin Durant, um, but they're all true. So you know, he took the Thunder. He was the face of the Thunder franchise. And, and as a Thunder fan, I rooted very hard for Kevin Durant. He uh, took them to the playoffs, deep into the playoffs many times. Even took them to the finals against the Heat one year. Uh, but they could never get over the hump. And, and in 2014, after seven years in the NBA, he was quoted as saying um, about winning a championship, he said, it would mean the world. It's the only thing I'm worried about at this point. I'll lay my body on the line for these fans and my teammates and this whole organization to win a championship. That's my goal. I'm going to keep fighting until I get it. Well, two years later, he was still without a ring. This is the summer of 2016. And the, the Thunder, the Oklahoma City Thunder, had just blown a 3-1 series lead against the Golden State Warriors. Okay, Every Thunder fan remembers this series with uh, great regret, okay? They were up three games to one. They, they had the Warriors down in their, own, in their own arena. Everything looked up for them to be going to the finals, and they allowed the Warriors to come back and win that game, then win another game, and then finally win the last game, and the Warriors beat the Thunder four games to three to go to the finals. And for those that are real Thunder fans, we know that Kevin Durant played a lousy series. He did, that doesn't sound bitter, does it? He didn't play very well. And it seemed like something was off, that there was just something off about the way he played. He always played with such confidence, and you knew he was laying it all out, leaving it all on the court. 
And, but in those playoffs, he didn't play very well. And once again, his life's greatest desire to win a championship, it was left unfulfilled. And less than two months later, on the 4th of July, 2016, Thunder fans remember that Kevin Durant chose not to re-sign with the Thunder, but he actually signed instead with guess who? The Golden State Warriors. Yes, the same team that had just beaten the Thunder and knocked them out of the playoffs. That elusive chase got the best of him, and actually it paid off. I mean, yes, we, yes he signed with the team that just beat him, and, and he signed with a team that was already a championship-caliber team, but the very next year, his first year with the Warriors, he won a championship. And actually, he won two championships two years in a row there in Golden State. And you would think that that would have changed everything. Remember his sound bites. He always talked about winning a championship. That's all he wanted to do. But by all accounts, if you read about Kevin Durant, it did not provide him with what he was looking for. One of his mentors is a point guard named Steve Nash. He played for many years in the NBA and a very good point guard, a great point guard. And he would work out with Kevin Durant. That first summer after their first championship, Stephen Nash said this, he didn't have a great summer. He was searching for what it all meant. He thought an NBA championship would change everything. And he found out it doesn't. He was not fulfilled. Kevin Durant said the same thing the following year after his second championship. He said, after winning that championship, I learned that much hadn't changed. I thought it would fill a certain void, but it didn't. Here's a man at the height of success. I mean, few things are more important to our culture than sports. There are few individuals more prominent or more emulated than professional athletes they're some of the most recognizable individuals in the whole world. And here's a man at the pinnacle, and yet he is saying that every achieving the highest level of success in that arena, in that regard, it did not fulfill or fill the void inside of him. I've seen a quote before, I've read this, and it goes like this. And this is an important quote to the rest of the message, so I want you to file it away, we'll come back to it. But it goes like this. It says, the emptiness of sports is most felt in victory. The emptiness of sports is most felt in victory. And we're all like, I don't really understand what you, what you mean by that. Well, Kevin Durant's a fine example of it. What I mean by that is before you achieve the greatest heights in your area, in your sport, you always have something toward which to strive but once you get there, you realize it doesn't fundamentally change anything about your contentment or satisfaction levels. It didn't for Kevin Durant. After three years with the Warriors, Durant walked away from that team. And this past summer, summer actually signed with the Brooklyn Nets. Now he's injured. He's not playing this season. But part of the reason he left, and this is his quote, he left and a source close to him said, well, because the Warriors made him feel unappreciated. Now, I'm not here to pile on Kevin Durant. I'm using him as an example of something that we all face. 
See, he's one of the greatest basketball players of the world. He's one of the greatest basketball players of all time. He's a future Hall of Famer with two championships at least. And he can't be content with his current situation no matter how much success he enjoys because the emptiness of sports is most felt in victory. We look at that situation and we might roll our eyes and say, well, you know, Kevin Durant is this entitled millennial who, who has to be affirmed and and if he doesn't get his way, then he's out, and, and we may judge him for that. But I want you to consider that discontentment is not just a problem for athletes. It's not just a problem for millennials. It's not just a problem for people that don't have very much. It is a human problem, and it continually gets worse. I told you the story of the airline pilot a couple of weeks ago who, as a child, would sit in a boat fishing and, and, and now he's in airline plight and he's flying, flying over that, boat, that lake where he used to sit on the, on the boat and fish. And he pointed it out to his, his co-pilot and said, see that lake down there? I used to spend my summers on that lake. And when planes would fly by, I would look up in the sky and I would say, I wish I was in that airplane. And now after all these years of flying, every time I fly over that lake and see that boat and somebody in the middle of it, I, I think, I wish I was in that boat. That's how we are. We're always looking for something to satisfy. We're always looking for something to fulfill us. We're very rarely in ourselves content. And discontentment is not a new problem. It has always existed in creation. Now I want you to consider then Lucifer, who was the gloriously beautiful created angel there in God's presence. And he had the highest position in heaven. And yet he looked at God's position and wanted God's position instead of the one that he had, discontentment. And then he took that mindset, after God threw him out of heaven, he took that mindset and slithered, slithered into the garden and approached Adam and Eve and went up to them and, and capitalized on their desire for something they didn't have and said, you can be like God. And Adam and Eve followed that advice and now we're all sinners because of that decision in the Garden of Eden. We can trace the roots of sin, back to discontentment, a desire for more. And, and so I was very solid on this thesis that, well, it's discontentment. It goes to discontentment until I realized that the word discontentment, it took a hit when I realized the word discontentment is not in the Bible. It's like, okay, I need to go back to the drawing board or find a verse that proves my theory. Sometimes preachers can do that. I'm hoping not to today. Now, the word discontent is not in the Bible, but the word content or contentment certainly is. We're told to be content. Two weeks ago, we were in the book of Philippians chapter 4, and Paul wrote, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. First Timothy 6.6, 6, he wrote to Timothy and said, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is what we're supposed to be. Contentment is self-sufficiency, meaning that we have all that we need in Jesus Christ. That was the point of that message two weeks ago, that contentment equals Christ. We don't need to search for answers outside of Jesus Christ to be happy or to be fulfilled. We don't, Jesus Christ is all we need to be content. If you have Christ, you have everything. I'll just say that. The opposite would be true then as well today. If you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. And you say, well, that's a pretty tough thing to stand up there and say and be all exclusive about it. I'm not the one that said it. Jesus Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. 
All you need to be content is Jesus Christ. And today, if there's somebody in this room that does not have him, you don't have anything. You can spend your life spinning your wheels to gain it all, but at the end, if you don't have Christ and you stand before God in judgment and he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you will realize in that moment that you lived your life with nothing. And today, let me just encourage you, if you don't know that you have Jesus Christ, you can have him today. Today is the day of your salvation, and I want you to live a contented life. God wants you to live a contented life. Jesus Christ is there offering eternal life if you would but accept it. We're obviously meant to be content. But you know, look around, and many aren't. So I wonder what's the Bible definition or the word for the opposite of contentment then. I want to be as biblical and as accurate as I can be. And discontentment, if that's not the word I should be using, which word, which word is it? I mean, if we're commanded and encouraged to be content, then it must be easy not to be. And I want to find a way not to be content. If I see the opposite of contentment in people like Kevin Durant, who has everything, then it must not come naturally. If you look in the Bible from the very beginning and you see Lucifer and Adam and Eve struggling with wanting what they don't have, then it must be a problem. And if it's that big of a problem, there must be an answer in the Bible. That's what we believe, folks. There's an answer for everything in the Bible. And I believe Hebrews 13.5 sums up how to combat this idea of discontentment. In the closing chapter, we see a list of various Christian duties, which we already read. And contentment is dealt with in verse 5. Look at it. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, it becomes clear right away that in biblical terms, the opposite of contentment is covetousness. He said, be not, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. So we have here then the biblical concept of the opposite of contentment. Over here is contentment. This is being fulfilled in Christ. This is having everything that you need. But on the opposite side, the opposing trait to contentment is covetousness. He says, let your conversation be without covetousness. And conversation's not talking about dialogue. Conversation is talking about a manner of life or a way of life. And what, what the writer is saying is, let your way of life, let you be known as a person that is not covetous. Let your way of life be somebody that's not always seeking to gain more. In the biblical context, the word covetous means money. It's referring to money. It's referring to material possessions. That's what covetousness means. And really, though, as a broad idea, this is a spirit in someone that causes them to always be looking to gain what they don't have. To always be looking to get what they don't already have. And that leads us to the Bible definition of covetous, covetousness, which is this. An excessive desire to have more than what God has seen fit to give us. An excessive desire to have more than what God has seen fit to give us. And this is no small character problem. See, covetousness doesn't get a lot of run in many sermons. 
It doesn't get a lot of attention, but I want you to consider the Ten Commandments, which encapsulates the essence of what it means to follow God. And in those Ten Commandments, the Tenth Tenth Commandment is found in Exodus 20.17, and it says this, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. See, the spirit behind that commandment is to stay far away from this excessive desire to have more than what God has seen fit to give us. Before you view that 10th commandment as just being an add-on to those big-ticket sins like murder and adultery and lying and stealing, I want you to stop and consider that covetousness is connected to many of those other commandments. They had to be warned against idolatry and adultery and stealing because they had a tendency, an excessive desire for things they didn't already have. You know, when he says that you need to don't, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images, he was telling the, the children of Israel that because they would have a desire to look around at what all the people around them were worshiping and want what they didn't have. The reason he had to say thou shalt not commit adultery is because a man or a woman who was, would, would have a tendency to look at someone else that is not their spouse and desire to have that which is not theirs. The reason he said thou shalt not steal is because it would be natural for the human being in a, in a, with, with a sin nature to look at the things that they don't have and want those things. Covetousness colors so much of our human condition. They had to be warned. It, it's really much more than just a do or don't. This is the only commandment there in Exodus 20, the only of the Ten Commandments that is not a do or don't. This is a commandment that is an attitude. It's a spirit. It's a way of thinking that affects everything. Don't think that the sin of covetousness is no big deal. The sin of covetousness is what caused Adam and Eve to sin, and therefore it's affected all of us. Coveting caused Cain to want to be accepted by God like his brother and commit that first murder. Covetousness is what made David look, on, look out on the roof, rooftop and, and look at a woman who was not his wife and want what he did not have and commit adultery and murder. Covetous. Covetousness is what caused Achan when the children of Israel were, were raiding Jer- Jericho and overcoming it that to steal some garments and some silver and some gold. And when he was caught... Listen to what Achan said. He said, when I saw them, I coveted them and took them. And a few moments later, Achan and all of his household were destroyed because of his choice to covet. We could spend all day talking about the destruction of covetousness that comes as a result of coveting. This excessive desire to have what God has not seen fit for us to have. And the reason the results of covetousness, and I want you to get this, the reason they're so bad, it's not because they lead to murder or adultery or stealing, although they definitely can. But the reason that the results of covetousness are so bad is because it leads us to seek contentment outside of what God has chosen fit to give us. It leads us away from those things that God says, this is for you. 
You find your contentment here. But covetousness causes us to leave that which God has given us and try to seek contentment somewhere else. So it's not just the result in murder or stealing that's so bad. It's that we leave God to find contentment somewhere else. Now, I'm not talking about complacency. I'm not saying that you should just be complacent and sit where you are and be content where you are and and don't worry about bettering yourself. No, you ought to better yourself. We ought to want to improve. We ought to want to get better or want more in a good way. It's never wrong to strive to get better at something as long as you're not seeking to find life's fulfillment in that endeavor. But I'm speaking of seeking to be content outside of God's provision for your life. I'm talking about the many in our culture who look at what they have and say, this isn't enough, and they go in debt to get so much more. I'm talking about those marriages that have been wrecked because rather than being content with the spouse that God gave someone, they look outside of that relationship to be content and be, be fulfilled. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about better your, bettering yourself. I'm talking about trying to find satisfaction outside of that which God has given you. And actually in doing that, we guarantee we won't be content. Because contentment is only found in God. He's the only source. And His provision is the only place we can find contentment. So covetousness leads us away from contentment. And actually, if you look at Colossians 3.5, it says that covetousness is idolatry. Meaning that rather than find our satisfaction, rather than being fulfilled in God, we kick Him off the throne of our heart and we chase after something to replace Him and thus become idolaters. Covetousness may not lead to murder or adultery or stealing or lying, but it will internally make you an idolater. We do it all the time by pursuing things that we don't have and thinking once we get them, well, I'll be satisfied. I've done this with just about every one of my children at some point when they're young and I'll take out a, 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 a bill, a $20 bill or something like that and I'll, and I'll have a $20 bill in one hand and an ice cream, a bowl of ice cream in the other from, from Zesto by the way, a bowl of ice cream in the other. So I'm right here. Might as well kind of earn some points with chat here. And I'll go up to my child who's probably two and a half or three years old. I've done it, I think, with all of them. Just to see. And none of them are financially savvy, as I've learned. And I'll say, I have a bowl of ice cream and I have a $20 bill. As a little two or three year old, guess which one they're going to pick every single time? The bowl of ice cream. And yet, if they were to take that $20 bill, they could go and buy four or five cartons of ice cream if they wanted to. But in the moment, they're thinking, well, yeah, I could eat right now, though. Do you realize that's how we are when it comes to contentment? See, we're holding something. And and if this represents God, it could be be a trillion-dollar bill, and it still wouldn't accurately represent God's value in our lives. But let's say this bill represents God's value in our lives and we're holding it in our hands and yet we see something in the moment, in the, in just right in the moment, right there for the taking and what we do is we set this down 
which represents God and represents contentment, we leave it there, what we're already possessing, what we already have in God, and we walk and try to pursue these other things that can't touch the contentment that only God can bring us. We set aside God and contentment, and we chase after idols that can't possibly give us what he can. And you say, well, how do I prevent this? Well, the answer is in this verse. Let me just give it to you in summary because this is going to just blow your mind. Ready? Here's how you live a life without covetousness. Be content with what you have. You say, that's the big reveal? Yeah, that's the big reveal. You see, we have to get to the place internally that we're able to say to God, I will be content with what you have seen fit to give me. Because as we've already seen this morning, through examples in Scripture and in our culture and our experiences, we have a tendency to focus, and here's where we're coming down to it, we have a tendency to focus more on the things we want than the things that we already possess. We have this grass is greener mindset, and you've seen livestock sticking their necks through a barbed wire fence to get a blade of grass on the other side when there's a pasture of good hay and grass all around them. And yet that one piece of grass through the barbed wire fence, they're cutting themselves up trying to lean over and grab it, but they'll do whatever it takes to get the grass because it's always greener on the other side. Always looking for what is beyond our reach and failing to value what we already hold in our hands. Because we think having something else will bring us the contentment we're looking for. And our biggest problem is not in what we have. And I want you to follow this. Our biggest problem is not in what we have. It is in what we don't have. Catch this. If we constantly search for contentment in that which we don't have, we'll never be content. Because we will always be reaching for what we don't have. So even if we catch what we're chasing, as soon as we get it, covetousness causes us to look at the next thing we don't have. You ever been to an arcade and play this game called Whack-A-Mole? Whack-A-Mole, you get this, this mallet and there's these little moles and they're popping up all over and you, you put the quarter in or two or four quarters now, or however much it is now, and these moles start popping up, and you've got the mallet, and you're trying to hit them all. One pops up, and you hit it, but that doesn't mean the game's over, because another one pops up, and pretty soon they're moving so fast that you can't even get all of them. I think that's a perfect picture of the average Christian in their lives today, because rather than just being content with the one mole they just hit, here comes another one, and they're chasing that. They're always chasing what they don't have yet. And in doing so, they guarantee that they'll never be content because they're always looking for the next thing. That's what covetousness does to us. It makes us play whack-a-mole, and we're just trying to keep up and try to get the next thing, but we never actually catch up. And we won't be content until we rest in what God has provided. And I want to look at three simple truths about contentment from this verse that I think could be a help in overcoming covetousness. And first, is contentment is supernatural. 
See, it can only come from God. God is eternal, and he's always been, he always will be. That's why he can make a promise like he made at the end of the verse when he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. Not only is God eternal, but he's faithful to us. He doesn't change. And as our father, he has taken it upon himself to meet our needs and to be present and to always provide for us. And there are times in our lives where our sin creates distance between us and God, but that is never God's choice. He stays right where he is all the time. If there's ever distance, it's because we're the ones that moved. He has promised never to leave or forsake us. Once you're his, he's in a committed relationship. And only an eternal, unchanging God can claim that. And I love the contrast in this verse. Because without explicitly saying it, he's giving us a very clear comparison between himself and the things we're chasing. See, without explicitly saying it, there's a difference being highlighted. He's talking, you know, the verse is about what we're coveting or what we're chasing. Or, and he's saying what you want is temporary. What you're chasing will not last. You think about money or you think about position at work or you think about your new clothes or a better house or a bigger house or a nicer vehicle or, and all of these things, a new relationship, all these things that you're chasing, all that you're going after, all that you're coveting, even when you catch it, someday it will disappear. But what he's saying is, but you have a father who's eternal and immutable. So you can interpret the verse like this. You could say this, go ahead and chase all the temporary things that someday will disappear. But I'm an eternal God who will always be here for you. You see the difference? Go ahead and covet You can covet, you can chase, and everything that you catch, you'll hold it now, but someday it will be dust. But I'm telling you, I'm an eternal father. I have promised never to leave or forsake you. So what we're choosing is between something temporary or something permanent. And very often, we're replacing what's permanent for something that doesn't last. And we're saying, I'll be content in this, and yet someday, very soon, likely, what you catch, you won't even have anymore. We make a choice. We either go after the temporary things that can't make us content, or we can choose to focus on what we already have as a child of God, that is a father who never leaves or forsakes us. If only God will, I mean, if only God will remain standing at the end. And you can have him. Why would you give your life chasing those things that won't give you contentment and won't last anyway? Contentment is supernatural. Can only be found in God. Second, contentment is internal. Contentment comes from the inside out. And I think the key word here is and be content in that second phrase. So this is saying that this is not something you do. It's not something that you possess or that you earn. This is something that you are. And God changes us from the inside out. Contentment is a deep-seated rest in your heart that Christ is all you need. And folks, today, you are internally, you are either content or you are internally covetous. You cannot be both. You are either content in Christ or you are looking for something else to be content in. 
And as your contentment rises, your covetousness falls. And as your covetousness rises, your contentment decreases. You can't be both at the same time. Either you are internally content in Christ or you're looking for it somewhere else. And it is only through that divine nature that we receive from God that contentment becomes possible. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Listen, as new creatures with a new nature, you finally have the option to be content. And I'll just say it again. I've already said it. But you will never experience true contentment until you have Jesus Christ, until you are saved. You will live your entire life with this God-shaped hole that nothing else can satisfy. Contentment is only possible through God. If you're not content on the inside, you'll be covetous on the outside. It starts with a heart. It's revealed in your actions. Contentment is eternal. It's not an action. It's an attitude of the heart that we trust God to help us to become. Third, so content, contentment is supernatural and internal. Third, contentment is habitual. It's a habit. You say, well, what habit? Well, the verse says, be content with such things as you have. The most important step in becoming content and putting an end to covetousness is one word. Gratitude. Thankfulness. You want to be content with such things as you have? Then spend more time in thanksgiving for what you already possess and less time searching and chasing and thinking and praying for the things that you want. See, the number one deterrent to being content in being covetous is gratitude. Every day, stop looking at what you want and what you don't have and tell God, thank you for what you've already given me. Stop looking over the fence. Stop looking across the street. Stop looking online and on your phone and look around at what you already have and tell God, thank you. Hold tightly the things that God has blessed you with and trust that it is His plan, if you already have it, it is His plan for you to be content with the things He's already given, the things you already have. The Puritan Thomas Watson said this, there's no better antidote against coveting that which is another's than being content with that which is your own. Matthew Henry said, he is much happier that is always content, though he has ever so little, than he that is always coveting though he has ever so much. Fanny Crosby, that great hymn writer, uh, she wrote words to many uh, hymns that we've sung, even Blessed Assurance this morning, that great blind blind songwriter who wrote so many of those hymns. As an eight-year-old, listen to her first composition. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and cry because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. One man said, contentment is realizing that God has already given me everything I need for my present happiness. Spurgeon said, if you're not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. Someone else said, contentment is understanding that if I am not satisfied 
with what I have, I will never be satisfied with what I want. Trade coveting for contentment today. Stop chasing what you don't have at the expense of what you already possess. Because setting God aside to chase an idol, it promises the world, but it delivers emptiness. It did for Kevin Durant. He caught what he was chasing only to realize the emptiness of sports is most felt in victory. But we can do the same spiritually. If you're expecting something that you don't have to make you content, then what you're chasing can be inserted into that phrase. Let me give you a few. The emptiness of a better paying job is most felt after you get hired but realize money doesn't increase happiness. The emptiness of a new relationship is most felt when you get it only to realize a person can't replace God in fulfilling you. The emptiness of that bigger house is felt once you move in and realize the new surroundings can't mask your spiritual deficiencies. Teenagers, the emptiness of doing your own thing instead of being burdened by your parents' rules is most felt once you get your freedom but realize that sin has consequences. For all of us, that sin that you're chasing, that sin that is your greatest temptation, its emptiness is most felt when you indulge in it, only to realize it leaves you just wanting more. The emptiness of religion is most felt when you go through the motions without having an actual relationship. The emptiness of blank You fill it in. What are you chasing today? What are you pursuing? What have you set God aside for so that you could find contentment in? The emptiness of fill in the blank is most felt when you finally get it only to realize it does not bring the contentment it promises. It's time for us, God's people, to stop focusing on what we don't have and be thankful for what we do. If you're a Christian, you have eternal life. Let me just say one more time. If you don't know that you have Christ, you can, have, you can leave this room without, with eternal life today. If you have Christ, you have life. You can have him today. He, he has opened the invitation to everybody and says, anybody whosoever will may come. If you're already part of God's family, though, you have eternal life. Be thankful for what you possess. Listen, if you had nothing else than eternal life... You have all you need. If you're a Christian, you have a father who never leaves or forsakes you. And in this world, there's a lot of forsaking. There's a lot of leaving and a lot of abandonment and a lot of betrayal. But you have a father in heaven who never will. If you're a Christian, you have God's word and the Holy Spirit to guide you. You're not alone on this journey. If you have a church family here, you have a place to hear truth and grow as a Christian. Be thankful for it. You have good friends who will support you. And for some of you in this room right here, it represents your family more than your blood family. If you have blood family, 
teenagers, be thankful for your godly parents. A lot of young people will look at their parents and say, oh boy, my parents are just so tough and they're so strict. And you look at across the street and you see those parents that let their kids do whatever they want. And you're thinking, if only I had parents like that. But listen, you, what, you, once you find, find out what the emptiness is of getting to do your own thing and having your own way and living your own life, you'll realize, man, I should be thankful for parents that give me some boundaries because if I was left to myself, I'd be destroyed. For you husbands and wives in here, I know how it is where you, you've married, been married long enough that the excitement starts... Well, I don't know how this is. My wife does. My wife knows how it is. That was a great save. To be married long enough. The excitement wears off, doesn't it? Nobody say amen. But you know, the excitement starts to wear off. And in our culture, uh, changing spouses and finding somebody else to replace what you've had for so long, it's easy. You can just look online. You can download an app. It's almost accepted in many circles. But if you have a loving spouse who loves God and serves God and supports, supports you... Husbands, your wife has spent all of those years taking care of you and taking care of your home and ironing your clothes and, and, and fixing your food and doing work. I think about my wife juggling. I mean, she's homeschooling and cleaning and, and, and fixing meals. Yet I expect her to be what I need her to be when I come home every day. She's, I have a great wife. And if you have a godly wife, who is helping with your children, men. Stop looking around. God's already given you everything you need to be satisfied. Wives, that husband that doesn't do everything right and leaves things around the house that you have to clean up after, I know, I'm sure it can get old. But listen, God has given you everything you need to be content. If he has given you that man, then he expects that you can be content with what you have. Stop looking around. Parents, stop looking around. If you have healthy children, be thankful. Be grateful for children that, that love and serve God. And yes, they're not perfect. None of us are. We should just stop looking around and stop comparing and stop chasing and be thankful for what God has placed in our hands. Because if He's seen fit for us to have it, then He knows we can be content with it. We have so much to be thankful for. It's time to stop focusing on what we don't have and be thankful for the things that last. Not the temporary stuff that everybody's going to be trying to get you to buy and put under a tree in a couple weeks. What you have that lasts is what you should focus on. Contentment is supernatural. It only comes from an unchanging God. It's internal. It's an attitude that starts on the inside and it is habitual in that you can be content if you make gratitude a habit. The more we become content with what we have, the less we will covet all the things that we don't. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.